Happy Valentine's slash Palentine's slash Galentine's slash whatever in times it is you celebrate, honeys. I decided to make you all my wonderful significant others in this great holiday of love and share with you slash treat you to an episode all about my current favorite works about love in art history. We've got four up for you today, spanning from 1892 all the way to 1991, and uh, I'm excited to share. So hope you enjoy this special treat and know how much I love y'all. A brief introduction of the works that we are about to cover just by names, dates, artists, etc. And in, I will admit, a slightly biased order. The first two I feel slightly more connection with than the last two, but that's neither here nor there. Anyway, the first will be Henri de Toulouse-Lautrec's In Bed, The Kiss of 1892. Second will be Felix Gonzalez Torres's Untitled, parentheses, Perfect Lovers of 1991. Then we'll have Roy Lichtenstein's We Rose Up Slowly of 1964. And we'll close out with Renee Magritte's The Lovers 2 from 1928. You may be wondering why exactly it is I am choosing to dive straight into the episode content rather than citing my sources, as I almost always do. And the simple answer is, this is a bonus episode. I'm lazy. I just don't really want to waste any of our time spieling out names and names and names. However, there is a source doc available. If you go to the episode information, you will find a link there to all of my sources. But I'm not going to do the whole thing in this episode. I just don't want to. Go ahead and consider me skipping the sources citation listing as part of your Valentine if you want. Beginning with Henri de Toulouse-Lautrec's In Bed, The Kiss of 1892, we're going to give a little bit of background information on the artist just so you understand who it is we're talking about and a bit more of his style, what this image kind of looks like. First of all, he was a Frenchman living 1864 through 1901. He was a very well-known painter and printmaker of his day. Generally, Toulouse-Lautrec was known for scenes involving fluffy skirts with striking black and red details, um, scenes of dance halls, joyous and large gatherings, often featuring wide-brimmed hats. That was a specialty of his. Although it is part of a larger collection commissioned by a Paris brothel in 1892 and is probably one of the most famous from this series, this particular painting in Bed the Kiss is notable for being one of his most intimate works as well as having that unique legacy. According to the Public Daily Review, quote, a Paris brothel on the Rue d'Ambrose commissioned Lautrec to decorate its salon, which he did in a series of 16 panels, each centering on an oval portrait of a different woman who worked there, end quote. Toulouse-Lautrec sometimes lived at this brothel amongst the women and was just kind of a daily fixture of their lives, became friends with several of them, confidence to many, 
and produced hundreds more works based on the inspirations that he found there from these women and their experiences and their maybe attraction as women. This might explain the tenderness and intimacy of these images, especially of particularly in bed, rather than a sort of sexualization or fetishization of the scenes in that series. Though many of these works in this in bed series were made for male eyes, you know, the customers of the brothel, the relatively innocent depictions complicates the ability to consume them in such a sexual light by presenting a very cuddly rather than outright lascivious scene. Basically, what this means is that even though the scenes are clearly depicting women interacting in a sensual, if not sexual, manner, even though it is a scene that could easily be sexually gratifying to various gazes, To Lose the Trek really focuses on the companionship between the two women, their goal of intimacy between themselves, and that really changes the scene from a pornographic one to a warm one. Something that struck me while looking at this work is how much of a respectful kind of perspective Toulouse-Lautrec took on these scenes, especially the kiss. Even though the commission obviously gave him the chance to create as much of a sexual scene as he possibly could between these two women, he instead decides to show them either going to bed or waking up, maybe in postcoital bliss or heading that way. He shows them as real people with a real connection who are seeking each other for that human connection, who are seeking each other for comfort. And it's really amazing that he was able to accomplish such a tender scene without any hint of exploitation whatsoever. I mean, the women are, of course, kissing, but they are completely covered by the sheets and blankets. They're tucked serenely into bed. It's a very sweet image, but there's something that appears very raw and vulnerable about their relationship in this image that is so unexpected given its uh, circumstances of production. I, I just love it. Next up, we have Felix Gonzalez Torres's Untitled, aka Perfect Lovers, at least that's um, a title afforded to it by others, of 1991. GT was a Cuban-born American visual artist. He lived and worked almost entirely in NYC, though, and lived from 1957 through 1996. 
He unfortunately died of AIDS-related complications. Perfect Lovers is a very simple two-part piece. According to Gonzalez Torres' own specifications, they should be hung above head height, they should be touching side by side, and should be synchronized at the time of their installation. The relative simplicity of these instructions is important because it allows curators to determine exactly where they should be placed on a wall relative to other artworks, and that can change our perceived relationships between these two clocks and other installations based on their spatial relationships. If you're having a little trouble understanding exactly what I mean by that, think about two objects sitting together on a table versus two objects at opposite ends of a room. You're of course going to think that there's some relationship between the two objects on the table and the two objects way the heck apart from each other have nothing to do with each other. Curators think the same way when they're designing exhibitions, so they will change spatial relationships in order to change your perceptions of how things are related to each other. And because the two clocks of Perfect Lovers are placed so close together, side by side, the audience is meant to understand that they are closely related. The most important part of this work, though, is how it plays out over time. As the batteries of each clock dies out, they fall out of sync. And this brings up ideas of both love and mortality. Although Gonzalo Torres was very supportive of individual interpretations of all of his artworks, the kind of consensus amongst the art history nerds is that the core idea of this piece is how the two clocks relate and how their quote-unquote dying out plays out in real life and much more meta ideas for example the death of love one author of an article that i read in research for this episode said by the name of smee said quote in and out of time in and out of love the same different alive dead always touching end quote of the work the same author goes on to say that Gonzalez Torres supposedly claimed that, quote, perfect lovers could be thought of as a double portrait of him and his lover, Ross Laycock, who died of AIDS-related complications in 1991, five years before Gonzalez Torres would die as a result of the same disease, end quote. But it could be a little more meta than Gonzalez Torres' own personal experiences, especially with any of his own friends or lovers. It could also stand for the larger struggles and progress within the LGBTQ community in the peak of the AIDS era and in the fight for rights of all sorts beyond could even stand for ongoing struggles such as the um, penalization of identifying under the queer umbrella within various nations of the world. In any case, there's something very poignant about how the clocks fall out of sync across time. 
There's so many ways that that relates to, of course, mortality as Gonzalez Torres and Laycock experienced it. But there could be other interpretations related to life and how ones that we feel close to, ones that are meaningful to us, with time, one way or the other, whether that's through personal error or differences or simply mortality, we drift apart, could say something a bit about how, again, related to mortality or not, love sometimes can fall out of sync or the people in it can fall out of sync. In any case, there's a lot of really powerful meanings behind the idea of two things that, though they remain physically close, no longer line up. Of course, we wouldn't be good art historians without talking about the importance of them being mass-produced clocks. Objects not built exactly by the artist's hand, not graced with a trace of the hand, this is an intentional part of the artist's minimalism. According to Smee, quote, Felix Gonzalez Torres was a minimalist at heart. He wanted people to respond to his art with their bodies, to feel the oddity, freshness, and surprise of sharing the same space as objects that happen to have been designated as works of art, end quote. So this means that he wanted the audiences to experience his works without having the works earn any sort of superiority from either the, the audience or any other objects. He quite literally does not pedestal the works above any others. He simply directs that these clocks should be hung on a wall. By removing any trace of his own personal identity, Gonzalez Torres allows the art to speak beyond himself. Although the clocks may have had queer personal meanings to him, he also wanted them to inspire personal interpretations beyond his biographical ones. Hence, our ability to read so many questions or signifiers of mortality and love in the interactions between these two clocks. FGT was well known for resisting the idea that his work should only be read in relation to his biography, his life. That's because he wanted to expand the possibilities of his art's meanings to various people. But this in itself was kind of in a political desire. Because it is so metaphorical and poetic and applicable to so many potential ideas, rather than being very explicit, cut and dry, see it and move on, the work has stuck with people and been reinterpreted time and time again. Number three, Roy Lichtenstein's We Rose Up Slowly from 1964. Lichtenstein was an American pop slash modern artist, a lot like Warhol. He lived 1923 through 1997 
and he was known for defining the premise of the pop art movement on parodies of popular and consumer culture. So all of the Campbell soup cans and Marilyn's printed a dozen times on one canvas that Warhol did, he got the idea of mocking pop culture from Lichtenstein. Lichtenstein was well known for his large-scale works showing damsels and distress, uh, young women in, in highly emotional states, and daring young man, very, you know, old-school Superman kind of types, derived from war and romance comics. He did so in order to point out not only the consistency of these depictions in mass media, but their ridiculousness by increasing the contrast between the figures to extreme degrees. According to the National Gallery of Art, quote, he was fascinated by the contrast between the emotional intensity of the stories found in comics and his own deadpan mechanical style. In other words, he loved making art of this type because the clear machine-made creation of them contrasts even stronger with the melodramatic storylines of these artworks. It denies the figures a sort of realness, creating a sentimentality at odds with the staticness and the non-naturalism of the cartoon design style. Even though it's extremely different from my sort of top two, I wanted to include this one because it reminds me so much of very young romances, like the sort of, I'll love you forever, I would jump in front of a bullet for you, like very melodramatic, silly promises, at least that I made when I was far too young to be making such promises. It it really shines a light on how silly some of those ideas were in terms of the damsel in distress and the young man savior. Like just how unbelievably incapable these girls believed themselves to be in this comic. It's it's Amazing to see Lichtenstein cleverly poke fun of them by exaggerating them just a little bit. And just a little bit is all it takes. And last but not least, we have Magritte's The Lovers 2 from 1928. Magritte was a Belgian surrealist, well known for putting familiar objects in weird contexts. He was a big fan of Freud. Of course, makes a lot of sense. He was one of the most important figures of the Surrealist movement and from his own nation, and is known for confounding the logic of what is being signified and what is a signifier in order to challenge reality. The easiest explanation I can give of a signifier versus a signified is to kind of explain it using a basic signal. Where there is smoke, there is a fire. The smoke is the signifier signaling that there is a fire, the signified 
Renee McGree lived from 1898 through 1967. Okay, so on to the work. Some attribute his overall obsession with covered and shrouded faces to the circumstances of his mother's death. She was found in the River Samb supposedly with a nightgown wrapped around her face for reasons unknown. This was very traumatic to him at 13. Though this attribution of sheets just to the circumstances of his mother's death is a pretty reductive, pretty basic answer. It seems especially unlikely that Magritte was thinking about his mother's death when making this particular work, as it is the second in a series called Lovers. The meanings of the work vary a lot when looking at it as part of the collection versus as an individual. A few things stand out when one looks at this work as part of the collection. Each one of the works in it is distinguished by a Roman numeral edition. They're all titled The Lovers 1234 and all possess a similar sense of mystery, physical closeness, and love because each scene shows two people, a man and a woman, ostensibly lovers based on the title. But in each of these works, the bodily positions are changed. The couple eventually comes out from under the sheets, wherein there's a full woman figure and a floating male head. So the question becomes, what is the relationship between the couple's poses as well as the presence of the sheets across these four works? We are left to wonder if these four scenes represent parts of a journey if they represent different aspects of the same relationship at the same time, or even across time. It's totally up for interpretation. As many potential meanings as there are for the work as part of the series, there are even more potential meanings for it as an individual. Many art historians have looked at that separation via sheets very literally, to interpret the meaning to be something along the lines of love is blind or one does not need to see to be in love. They have thought maybe the sheets are a little more of an explicit reference to the bed and perhaps what these two would like to be doing to each other. Maybe the sheets indicate that they are hiding things from each other. This is a very possible uh, interpretation as the Surrealists were obsessed with masks and disguises and things hidden under the surface and, and everything related to subconscious, double meaning, hiding, the like. The sheets could even represent obstacles and pains, the trials and tribulations of love or trying to navigate life with love. Or the sheets may be a physical representation of the physical inability of two people to actually see the details of each other's faces or, or otherwise clearly while embracing or kissing while they are so very near each other. I appreciate this work because it does exactly what it's intended to as a surrealist work. 
it changes meanings based on your own personal thinking, your own personal perspective every time any one person comes across it. Every time I've seen this work at a different point in my life, it has meant something different to me, including some of those meanings that I mentioned to you. And I'll let you go ahead and try and figure out which ones. The Surrealists wanted to create works that would speak for themselves by being so full of signifiers that could mean different things to different people. Some might see the sheets as literal. Some might see the sheets as metaphorical. Some might see the kiss as literal. Some might see the kiss as metaphorical. Every interpretation is different, and that's what's great about Magritte. All right, honeys, those were our four Valentine's Day featured artworks for this lovely year of 2024. Hope you've enjoyed. Hope you all had a wonderful love and friendship-filled holiday. And I'll talk to you all again on Tuesday. Take care of yourselves and have a great weekend, honeys. This podcast was created, produced, written, hosted, edited, and fact-checked by master's graduate Celia Bugnow. Our upcoming music will be courtesy of Kelsey Weber. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe on all of your favorite streaming platforms as well as your social medias.